How do you so like cool, that? dude. Here we are. I love it. We're at Bob's fucking big boy. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, let me just... Do you know, in all the years I've known you, I don't think I've ever had the pleasure of you driving me around in the car. That's true. <laughs> As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory But that's how You know, it's only fitting that I should drive my friend Derek Furman around in the car because the man has done his fair share of driving in Los Angeles, the city where, if you listen to old 80s tunes by Missing Persons... Ha! See what I did there? <laughs> so, I had the great pleasure of meeting up with Derek in his adopted hometown of Burbank, California, while I was traveling out west this fall, and I literally got off the plane at Bob Hope Airport, my favorite airport in the country, rented a car, and drove straight to his house. And then we went to the original Bob's Big Boy. That's right. The flagship location, which was very exciting. Um, back in the day, I used to go to the Bob's Big Boy in Newark, Delaware, where me and my uh, college cronies would go whenever our dorm mate, Mary Kate, was waiting tables, and she would secretly comp us the late-night breakfast bar. Good times. Good times at old U of D. Um, University of Delaware is also where Derek attended college, and although he did so a few years after I did, we initially connected as members of the extended music scene that was happening in Delaware and Philly during the early aughts, when my band, Ike, befriended his band, Omnisoul, and we eventually had the same manager, Jim Johnson. And as time went on, our friendship grew and... We asked Derek to star in Ike's music video for our song, Deathbed. I'll tell it to the world on my deathbed someday. Nah, 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 nah. Which, if you can believe it, was an homage to Citizen Kane. Not an ambitious music video at all. Uh, anyway, within a couple of years of rising up the ranks of the scene, Omnisoul changed their name to The Crash Motive, signed a deal with Wind Up Records, um, famously the same label as Creed at the time, and um, they hit the road. And if you never heard The Crash Motive, the band sounded like this. But as it would turn out, fronting the crash motive was not to be the path to Derek Furman's success, although it would be a very key starting point. Um, the band's A&R guy, Greg Wattenberg, saw something in Derek that kept them in touch well beyond the record deal, and eventually Derek became a songwriter and producer under Wattenberg's Arcade Songs publishing company. And since the 2010s, Derek has written and or produced songs with artists like the Goo Goo Dolls, Philip Phillips, J. 
James Bay, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rascal Flats, and many, many more. These are all these are all people you've heard of. So not too shabby for a guy who once uh, was an intern for Ike. <laughs> Derek also just signed a new record deal with a subsidiary of Universal Music Group um, with an animated project called Mascot, which um, puts him back in his old role of using his amazing voice to sing lead in a band again. I couldn't be happier to see my friend just killing it in an industry that has changed so much since the days we were part of a music scene together. And I'm excited to share our conversation with you right now, right here on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. And you come, come here every every Saturday since uh, since probably he was like one. Derek, I heard Derek. In the mornings, so I usually get here pretty early. These are the best seats. Yeah, because it's like probably the original seats. Yeah. Thanks. All right. But like all the waitresses know my kid, and Aww. it's really cute. I apologize. I don't know that I know your son's name. Finn. Finn. Right on. Finn. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Did I? I didn't bring my glasses in. I think I can read this. It's big print. I, I'm so <laughs> blind now, dude. Are you really? I mean, I've needed reading glasses for like the past like four years, uh, and it's just like if it's not. Because the thing about it is, there came a point in my visual life when my optometrist said, "All right." Do you want to be able to see up close or far away? Oh, uh, you got to make a choice. <laughs> you can't have both. Mm. Do you have a go-to here? I've only... So, normally I eat breakfast here. The other thing that's really good here is their salad dressings, believe it or not, are, like, famous. Really? So, when you go to Ralph's, mm-hmm. they have all the Bob's, Bob's Big, Big Boy, Boy dressings. Dress- yeah. Get out of here. How do you like that? All right, well... I'm probably going to do a uh, when in Rome scenario here. Ooh. That wow. sounds right. All right. So, so the, you, you've lived out here for how many years now? Um, it just hit five years in July. Okay. Yeah. And prior to that, you were in New York? I was in New York, yeah. And that's um, where you grew up, right? You grew up- I grew up in Westchester County in the right. suburbs. Okay. And... Uh, I moved into Manhattan um, when I like had my first success like songwriting, right? And uh, could afford to like not live in my dad's rent-controlled <laughs> studio apartment anymore. Right, right, okay. And um, so that took a few years after I left the music scene in Delaware. Right. Stopped being in the band. Started this new thing. Took probably three years. I signed a publishing deal. And right. a couple years later, I had like my first big success. I kind of feel like we have to talk about your career in two parts. Like mm. your, you know, obviously like the stuff you have 
happening currently and in the last, you know, five, seven years mm-hmm. is massive. Hey, thanks, man. But I also want to talk about your Delaware days too because that was for me like getting to know you during that time Mm -hmm. makes seeing your success now all (laughs) the more cool you know what I mean and what what, how did you end up in Delaware in the first place college oh so you went to you did yeah okay yep and and at the time had no experience or interest in music really really uh it was it was more like uh acting and and like theater and and because of theater uh i learned how to sing when i was in high school okay and then uh, did you did, was that your major at delaware or what, what, what did no. you study um no it i knew i wasn't gonna do it anymore do you oh, know what i mean okay. when i went to college thank, thank you. you very much oh so i guess i get two salads <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Bizarre, right? Salad on salad yeah. action. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it uh, you know it, it gave me sort of the confidence that I could sing. Mm-hmm. And then freshman year of college, um, at that time, I think there was a bit of like a music scene brewing at University of Delaware. Because, like, every guy I met played guitar and sang. <laughs> and the ones who didn't, I got didn't sing. I just played guitar. I got friendly with. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, let me sing this song, you know. Oh, I'll be the singer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Right. And then um, the other aspect of it is part of the reason I ended up in Delaware was because um, one of my best friends from high school was this girl named Carrie Brown who was a year older than me. We like lived near each other, and I sort of always like looked up to her. Mm-hmm. And she had gone to University of Delaware and came home to visit one weekend, and was like, you know, you you got to go to UD. Just there's, raving about there's it. There's great music there, and like you, my boyfriend's in a band. Like you get along with him, blah blah. blah. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go to Delaware and like be in a band. You know, you just you know, when you're 18 or 17 or whatever, and you you think like that. But sometimes. lo and behold. Yeah. So yeah. So so I think like the music scene that was growing in Delaware. Just by the time I was a sophomore, I was uh, wanting to start a band. I I learned how to play guitar. You know, mm-hmm. uh, mostly cutting classes. And, you know, learning guitar tabs instead. And um, and then I started. You know, sort of like searching the internet for other musicians at University of Delaware. People. And that's how I put the whole band together. Was over over like a year long period of like meeting different people, trying different people out, right. and eventually, like the rhythm section, Josh and Tyler mm-hmm. um, were already in another band together. That oh, so was they like already knew somewhat each other. popular. Yeah. And uh, what was their band called? The Healthy Doses. It was like a like a total jam band, okay. like Grateful Dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so how yeah, do you that, get two guys that are in that situation to, to be like, yeah, we'll play these uh, full atmospheric pop songs now? <laughs> I think because like in the beginning we were way more jammy than what that's we became. true. So what happened is I we we had been playing like the the like you know four hour bar set circuit. I remember the first time I saw you was East End Cafe. I think that's the first time I ever saw oh, you. Okay. Guys. 
And I, I wonder if maybe that was after we've gotten over the hurdle of like playing Iron Hell every Thursday night been. or something. I mean, it seemed like people knew you and like... Well, what happened is like, I think I started feeling like I am not singing in the style of what my voice was meant to be singing. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten a Roland's digital recorder and I started writing songs and recording them and I had this idea like oh, I'm going to start a side project because I was in an acapella oh, okay uh, and there was a lot of like background vocals in my in my instincts was it like a uh, like the golden blues it was a gold blues it was the gold blues. blues yeah you know my ex-wife very good friend is the guy that started the gold blues I probably told oh, you that really? back in that the day that makes sense actually yeah yeah that, that makes a lot of sense I recent, a few years ago I went to the reunion oh right on it was, it was really fun but um but yeah, so I was learning actually without no because I was arranging the songs. I think my second year, I became uh, music director and stayed music director until I finished school. Wow! And, and, and like, so I was I was learning how to produce, how to dissect songs, like yeah. what the instruments were doing. All right, because you have all those vocal parts that that are actually mimicking yeah. the instruments. And so I think I had this idea. I'm going to start like a side project with like just me and some background singers. Uh-huh. And when I was in Omnisoul, and um, in the process of doing that, I wrote three songs for that idea, and one of them was waiting. But we were playing wow. these three to four hour sets at bars, so there was a time where we ran out of material, and the band would go, and I'd play more songs. Right. And we were very stubborn about not playing covers. Maybe one cover, so, yeah. because it was cover band dominated. I remember, scene, you did you know. the Radiohead song. Yeah, a lot, but yeah. Yeah, and awesome. we eventually started playing more covers than we did in the beginning because I think we were just trying to be like, we play original music and mm. we can get fans. Like we were dead right. set on that. Yeah. Um, for better or worse, and um, so I, so what would happen is I'd start playing an acoustic set in the middle of our set and I played waiting and I remember Josh our bass player came up to me and was like where was that like we gotta do the song why are we not doing that song and at the time we had just hired Sean Manningly to be our guitar player which like sort of filled out the final roster of the band so when Sean ended up joining the band and he had sort of like a more rock guitar background Mm-hmm. It sort of filled out our sound and made a song that didn't sound like it was appropriate for what we were doing. All of a sudden, makes sense and sort of guided the rest of the sound. Yeah, from that there. Makes sense. So probably around the time I met you was when we had just started to figure that out. Yeah, and we were uh, off to uh, goodness to Phil Nicolo's place yes, in Conchalk and Studio Four. Studio Four. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's so funny, like now that I work with artists mm-hmm. um, their world is so different than it was for us not that long ago it's just so so uh-huh. different like how is it different well obviously social media changed everything yeah for, for every industry mm-hmm. but a lot of artists don't need to play shows to have a massive fan base. Yeah. A lot of artists right now are struggling to tour at all because they can't make money doing it, even successful popular artists. Yeah. And for us, you know, not that 
by any means our bands were household names, but we had loyal fan bases in a pocket of the country. Based on us going out and playing. Just playing all the time yeah. and, you know, really, we had, we definitely had a music scene yeah. that was very real, it was, it was known about, it was talked about. It was it was a brief pocket in time in a yeah. small pocket of the country, mm -hmm. and I don't know that that really exists anywhere anymore. Yeah. Um, Do you think that artists? I mean, I guess maybe you can't miss what you never had, but you think that 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 affects like how they kind of view their place in? The, is there any sense of community at all? <laughs> yeah, well, here there certainly is in L.A. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that that community here comes with a lot of uh, pros and cons, like, I think, as, as artists. Um, I, I certainly am glad that I never lived here as an artist, mm -hmm. like, n seeing what I see. Yeah. Because um, the stakes are so high, it's like, it's either, like, it's either like be the biggest or just like quit in a year. Or you just know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and the artists are very competitive with one another. Um, hmm. Audiences are not the same here as they are in other cities I've lived in. You know, it's like. In what way? Um, you know, it's like the friends and family crowd and like the business crowd. Mm -hmm. And so, like the the, the audiences are, are um, not as enthusiastic, you know what I mean, yeah. as they would have been even in Philadelphia or yeah, you know, New York or you know, like I think some of the best places to play are like Tulsa, you know, like where people are just like, oh, music is amazing, you know. I just did a five day run with a band that I'm friends with in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Because they got two shows opening for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I saw some of that online. And so the two places we played were Shipshawana, Indiana, mm -hmm. and Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. And when I tell you that these people just go like ape shit, mm -hmm. they must have had. Like they, like both nights we we played, I think they cleared like almost like fifteen hundred a night in merch, which wow. is unheard of for an opening act. Wow! And people just love like lines just to you know. Yeah. And see, that would just never happen here. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of things that about. You know, being an artist right now that I think are, I'm like, damn, if I had access to that oh, yeah. back then, when I had the time and energy and I didn't have a family, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I actually um, accidentally started uh, an artist project for the first time since OmniSoul Crash mm -hmm. Motive Days. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, and it's all animated, so I'm not actually in it. There's never, I'm not physically playing shows. In other words, yeah. but I'm singing and writing songs with with a friend that he's producing the songs and mixing them. We ended up signing a record deal 
you know, at, at an imprint under Universal. It's mm -hmm. a company called Imperial. And it's really exciting that that's happening. Um, the that's whole, amazing. The main concept is this animated universe that we've built, mm -hmm. combined with we're specifically writing songs and at like television and film. Because um, we're not we're not under any yeah. false pretenses that we're going to like get on the radio or no, anything when like we, that. You had mentioned this to me when we had our phone call a while mm -hmm. back. That's like a fairly recent phenomenon where like acts are forming specifically for that niche for, for they call it sync yeah sync yeah it's a phenomenon that kind of makes all the sense in the world to me as, a, as the industry transitions away from radio mm -hmm. because as you know radio was already starting to have some challenges without getting advertising dollars mm -hmm. before the pandemic I think ad revenue for radio went down 70% during wow. the pandemic, and it's oh. had trouble recovering since, similar to movie theaters. Mm -hmm. And um, so when, a, when new artists are having more trouble than ever finding audiences on the radio, which is the hardest thing to get on right. for any artist, yeah. it's like, oh, well, what are our other outlets? Well... That's part of the reason I think there's this TikTok boom. Yeah. And young people are finding new music on TikTok. And um, I think uh, film and television licensing carries a greater importance than ever. Um, so it's all come in tandem with, with the fact that, you know, there's more and more content that needs music every day because of technology. Yeah. And then... Uh, not all of these uh, commercials and movie trailers and whatever yeah. it might be mm -hmm. want to spend, you know, $500,000 on the new Foo Fighters single to be in their commercial or right. a Beyonce song or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what you end up with is a lot of sound-alikes who they might be able to clear a license for their song for $25,000. Mm -hmm. But then there's companies that were formed that are like, well, let's just get a hundred twenty-five thousand dollar license licenses for this one artist. And I have friends who are making millions of dollars a year doing that. Dude, that's so that's nuts. So this was like a side hustle for me outside of producing and writing for other artists, mm -hmm. where I just really missed singing. Well, I remember you told me the story that you were like in some kind of songwriting uh, session with some younger writers and one of them was like you sing? yeah <laughs> I remember what it was so a lot of times you work with art especially now living in LA because like even in New York the artists that I worked with rarely lived in New York right but now LA even though traffic's crazy and it's a big city or whatever most of the artists that I work with live here in LA and it's not that big of a city so artists you work with a lot you tend to become friends with. Mm -hmm. and especially because my wife and I don't have any friends out here built in when we moved here right. all of our friends are friends that like I worked with and then they had a girlfriend or whatever and my wife got along with her right. you know right. um, in one case there's a band called Fly By Midnight that's an up and coming band they're like a pop rock sort of outfit mm -hmm. duo. They're doing really, really amazing. And I met them a couple years after I moved here. 
and we just hit it off, sort of never stopped working together. And um, they've become like family to my wife and I, and yeah. we hang out all the time. So we had a birthday party for my wife, and I sang a song, and they were like, what the fuck, dude? Like, I can only sing. And I've written like 10 songs with them. You know what I mean? But my singing voice in the studio, I learned early on in 2012, I was working with um, the Goo Goo Dolls for the first time. Yeah. And um, my collab, I, I got not, not fired, but I was basically like told, like, you're not in the session anymore. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. And at that point, I, I I was not that far removed. It was only a couple years removed from being in a band and being the singer in a band. And right. like thinking of myself, part of my identity was that I'm a singer. You're a singer, yeah. And so part of what I thought my role was in the room was to like sell an idea right. to its to its utmost <laughs> degree. And um, that made people uncomfortable. And it was really fortunate, actually, that I learned that lesson from one of my idols, Johnny Resnick. Mm -hmm. He never said it to me, but he didn't have to. Right. You know what I mean? There was never even to this day, and he's a dear friend of mine, but like to this day, there has never been a conversation I've never said to him, you know, <laughs> remember I remember time? when you fired my ass, and it really, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, but it did change things, and so to, you know, put into demonstration is like, artists, now friends of mine, seeing me sing at a party and going like, oh, like, you you actually sing. It's not that I'm not singing in the room, I'm just right. under singing. Yeah, you're Letting not. them be the artist. Right. You're not creating insecurities for them by, like, singing better than they could. <laughs> I don't even think it was, like, a better than they could, because, you know, like, Johnny's an incredible yeah. singer, all these people that I work with are great singers. It's more just, like, like, sometimes an idea in my head sounds so good for that artist, uh -huh. but when I sing it, it might, might sound confusing, like how could I, you know, and mm -hmm. I sort of learned that more and more slowly, like, oh, like, the singer actually matters, like, even if, even if I'm right. pitching a song, mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to sing every demo of everything I write, because sometimes my voice is not going to sell an idea that sounds like it could be a hit song. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you so, write things so you, all the time. You get somebody that you know, like, this is this is the right fit for the song. Yeah. You and I have, like, a back. few people that I write with mm -hmm. that do completely different styles of singing than I do that I'll, I'll bring in and, you know, pretty routine for things like that. So correct me if I'm wrong. So... Crash Motive did the record for Wind Up. Yeah. And you stayed pretty tight with your A&R guy, correct? Oh, oh, so yeah, so, um, the story there <laughs> is that, you know, being in such a small town like Newark, Delaware, mm -hmm. um, when we were entertaining offers from labels, that was like our, our like, you know, spiderweb to the music industry, really. It was like, we were just trying to 
stay afloat for as long as we could. And, and outside of that, we because we didn't live in LA and we didn't live in New York and we didn't have those resources that a lot yeah. of bands, they think like, oh, I'm going to move to LA now that we're starting to like build the fan base or I'm going to move to New York. We didn't do that. So like Greg Wattenberg was our A&R guy at Wind Up and he ended up producing our album. Mm-hmm. And when we were making our album, he he was starting to, to write songs. He started his career mostly as a producer. And uh, he was starting to co-write in sessions. And um, he would always say to me, like, while we were making our album, like, you know, one day you're going to be a producer. Like, I can tell you have the ear for it. Hmm. And um, he's like, you know, if I'm ever working with XYZ artist and I need an idea, I'll hit you up. Which he did. The trouble is... What you don't know uh, when you're starting out is, you know, artists really like to be in the room when the ideas are birthed, unless mm-hmm. they're like a straight pop artist, like, yeah. you know, and even straight pop artists like a Katy Perry or somebody like that, they're, nowadays they really want to be in the room. Yeah. Um, oh, I would, I would think they would. Yeah, they're, they're, I, I do seem to remember a time in like early 2010s where that was less common and really? like people were taking songs just like country music artists would take a song or would take a song but uh, it's less in, in fashion now I'd say really? yeah. um, but anyway so he, I would send him ideas and he kept giving me you know positive feedback mm-hmm. um, this was towards the end of the Crash Motive being together mm-hmm. slash Elmy Soul um, and eventually um you know, the band had to face some realities of like, okay, we don't have a record deal anymore because mm-hmm. we didn't feel we were being treated the way that we needed to be. Mm-hmm. We didn't feel we were supported the way we had been promised to be supported. Right. And we tried to make a, an EP independently. We had big dreams and, you know, it, it was it was a too tall of a mountain to climb and we've had a taste of some real success Uh it felt like and so it was too hard I think for me at least to like start moving backwards and I felt that I had this opportunity to go write songs for other people Uh and I felt like I could be happy doing that and I remember talking to other artists at the time who were like I could never be happy doing that I I gotta be an artist Mm -hmm. and and you know, we were talking about it in the car ride over here. Like, I think that was like the first time I realized, like, oh, like I'm a bit of a chameleon. Like, I I embrace change. I'm not afraid of change. But that single-handedly helped me realize that about myself. Because leaving the band was so sad. I have a friend who's an artist that I work with who's going through the same thing right now. Really. And I'm reliving my experience a little mm-hmm. bit through yeah. that. And it's really sad. It's really sad. You know, you know the Caulfields have had a couple of 25th anniversaries the past yeah. couple of years, this year being one of them. And, you know, it does make you kind of, uh, you know, review <laughs> yeah. um, things that happened back in the day and this year in particular because it's... Not only the 25th anniversary of our second record, but it's the 25th anniversary of the year we broke up. 
Mm. We actually got together in a, at uh, Sam Musumeci's house, and I put a microphone in the table, and we basically recorded an oral history of the whole saga of making our second record and, you know, and stuff going south, but I think for all of us, and it's obviously, um, it's a little different in a very good way to have Brett be part of what we're doing because he's almost like, I mean, he's in the band, but he's also like our... Uh, outside observer in a way and he'll mm. like ask very pointed questions because he's curious right <laughs> and um, I think for the most part if I go back and I like listen to the to that the recording of all that mm-hmm. we're really only holding on to the good stuff which I'm very happy about because it would you know and I've thought about this a lot over the years I think that I'm like you. Like, I've learned or accepted that change is going to happen anyway. And I actually now have gotten to the point where I'm, like, seeking it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to get too comfortable doing anything for too long. Because I I now am at the point where I naturally become a little antsy about it. Yeah. So... It's very interesting how, you know, we all have these big turning points in our lives and careers, and how you handle that moment really sets you on a trajectory for the future. I think about that all the time. You know what I mean? I looked at my son, and I'm like, whoa, if I didn't do that, that, and that, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be here right now. Right. And basically everything in our lives can kind of be like looked at that way. But yeah. I, like I, I really focus on, you know, where my life is, all yeah. the things that I've experienced and gone through. There's certainly pivotal decisions that oh. made big other big things happen. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just it just kind of fascinates me, and, and in a way. I'm so excited about this book and I'm so proud of it that I almost have convinced myself that being a musician and having the musical life that I've had and just the life in general, it all really happened to build up so that I could write this thing. Like, I really, yeah. I, you know, like, I'll always do music, but I, I always wanted to be a writer when I was a yeah. kid, like a little kid. So I know I'm going to do both from now on. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm just going to write this book and I'm going to write back to, okay, now I just make records and play shows and do everything the same way that I've always been doing it. Like, I, I, I want it to be like this constant forward motion of how I express myself. So I kind of remember you talking about writing a book like way way back in like 2004 or so it doesn't surprise me that I might have but yeah, I think we were at a diner actually really? having conversation <laughs> yeah. maybe I'm just having deja vu no I mean I may have just been 
blurting out my dreams to you with no actual like thought in my head because I know I didn't really get serious about wanting to pursue a memoir until after my mom died and then yeah. it became like really clear like that's how I should do it yeah because yeah. Um, you know when I was like 13, 14 I also thought oh maybe I'll be a script writer like what you know my friends and I made these movies and we had like you know very thick poorly written scripts <laughs> for these movies right I labored over you know and um it's one of the reasons it's so cool um I think I mentioned to you that my nephew works uh, for Netflix out here. Right, right. He's got his first, uh, like, he's done, like, a lot of of shows and stuff. Um, did I tell you that he uh, was a writer on Good Mythical Morning? No. Yeah. Wait, he, not anymore. Not not currently. That's why okay, that's, I, that's I was small so... World. That's so small world, dude. Because... Yeah, so he wrote on that show. Um, probably like. Yes, sir. Doing okay? Great, thank you. Maybe like five years ago. Wow. He was a writer on that show. He wrote three full episodes of this new kids show called Oddballs. Maybe you're so. Oh wow! Like it. No, not not yet, but I feel like I've heard of it. Um, it just came out like last month, I want to say. Okay. And um, so it's so exciting to see him like really thriving and all of that man it's, it's the coolest it's kind of amazing like how much space there is I think now more than ever for people to be successful in entertainment yeah you know what I mean it's because um, there's so many outlets they need so, content so many I mean it's just even again like looking back at like our music scene era like like how rare it was to have friends or peers or family who were succeeding in art yeah. entertainment in any way mm -hmm. um, yeah it's, it's pretty wild I, I always tell them I'm, I'm like Nick I'm just biding my time I'm watching <laughs> you do one cool thing after another you're climbing right. the ladder right and then right at the right moment I'm gonna like pitch you my show <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly I mean that's how it happens though yeah. that is exactly how it happens um, a friend of mine <laughs> I have a very successful entrepreneurial friend from college. Mm -hmm. He was just always, always successful at everything he did, whether it was school or or music or whatever. Right? He used to be in a band, but not at Delaware. It was like a high school band, okay. but they were like really popular. He was really talented, and he went on to like start two businesses that became like really profitable businesses sold both of them yeah and now he's like looking for things to do with this time he's like my age and retired basically wow. and he has been saying to me for a long time I want to do something together in music nice but it's so funny because that's the first thought that went through my head is like Am I that like annoying friend who's been like waiting in the wings? Like, and you knew that I was waiting for you to ask me to do something right. profitable with you. Uh -huh. right. <laughs> you think about like athletes. I don't think you've been uh, 
you know, dragging your feet this full time, right. dude. I think right. you've been. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you've been I doing know. the work. <laughs> no, no, it, but it is. I'm just saying that 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 is a funny concept, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, oh, you're successful now. Let me pitch you my movie idea. Um, <laughs> but of course, it's not like that. Um, yeah, and I don't think I answered. I finished exactly answering my question. I think I took a very long-winded approach to That's tell okay. you that. That's what this that, is about. Uh, Greg Wattenberg, who produced my album, and said, "Hey, I think you're really good at songwriting and producing, whatever." When I left the band, I moved back to New York, where I grew up, into the suburbs of New York. I commuted into the city every day. Got a part-time job, which I hadn't had since uh, sophomore year college. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I've been. What was that job? I was working for um, a company called Park Agency, which was the, the Kennedy Family Financial Office. Okay. And I started, it was a temp job through a friend that I knew. Mm-hmm. And um, they needed me and I needed them, so we did it for three years. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and uh, it was great because. They let me be flexible with my hours. Mm-hmm. I think I worked like about 20 to 30 hours a week, depending on what was going on right. there. Mm-hmm. And it was right after, you know, my, my apartment was right across the street from the train station, and I was a 35 minute ride to Grand Central. The office for the Kennedys was right outside of Grand Central. And then the studio that I would go to at night was, was Greg's studio. Okay. And, um, I would go there at night, like really not when anyone was around, and just he let me like use the studio to write ideas. That's awesome. And so I did that for about a year mm-hmm. or two years, and then I finally started writing things on my own that I think he was like, "All right, this is getting really good." Like, let, and I think also there, there's been OAR was working with him on an album, and they started hearing some of the ideas I was working on, and they were like, "Let's bring him in for a session." Mm. And then um, that was pretty much it. I, I quit the Kennedy job and I started instead of going like, you know, 9 a.m. at the Kennedy's, then like 5 p.m. at the studio and coming home at 2 a.m. at right. the last train home, it started to look like, you know, 10 to 10 or something like that. Yeah. Like long days at the All studio. All in the studio, yeah. But like my life got a little more normal and then I think I. Well, the first thing that, that happened for me was uh, I had an opportunity to write a theme song for the talk on CBS. Oh, and wow. So I that's, didn't know you that, did that. That's me singing, too. I didn't even the know you song. did that. That's, As a first... I mean, dude, you probably have, like, 25 credits that I'm as yet unaware of. You know what I've found is, like, doing what I do, I've felt very blessed because I've been doing this version of, of being a songwriter, you know, not being an artist, being a songwriter and producer for other artists yeah. um, since 2010. Yeah. It's been 12 years. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have, like, huge success in a flash, like lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. the last a few years. They make a ton of money. Yeah. Somehow I've been able to tread water for a long You're time. You're slow burn. That's good. You know what I mean? And I think I kind of prefer it because it's not exhausting. It's like, I mean, I almost quit once. 
I think it was right around the time that uh, that I was working on that Goo Goo Dolls record and mm-hmm. they were like stop showing up basically right. <laughs> and then a bunch of other things I was getting a lot of like I've been writing full time for a couple of years now and um, I had a couple things that had gone my way and but but no like big hits happened right. yet. A lot of like songs that went to radio and things. Yeah. But none of them really landed. And you'd think to yourself, well that sounds great. Like you jerk, stop like <laughs> like complaining about your life. But really, to make ends meet, like right. you need to have hits. You need to right. you know people were buying less records, you know, gone are the days and gone were the days already by twenty twelve where you know, you could have a cut on a big album that sold five million right, copies, and from you the made being a, like enough a mechanical royalties <laughs> that it was like having a hit song. Those days are gone. Yeah, I basically had a, a song that I think it was like Big Time Rush. It was like a boy band on Nickelodeon. Wait a minute, it was like really big. You wrote for Big Time Rush. I had a song that was gonna be like their like mainstream radio okay. single. Okay. And I had gone, and what was cool about it too was that I wrote and produced it a hundred percent myself. Mm-hmm. So it was not only a big opportunity in pop, right. which I hadn't really had a breakthrough in pop. Um, it was also potentially highly uh, uh, equitable <laughs> right. because I had a hundred. It's very rare to get a cut with because an artist, and you you're, were hundred percent. You're like pop. you did it all. Yeah. yeah. So. A uh, few months of like being sort of dragged around, and it didn't happen. Uh. And it was so certain that it was going to happen. And I mean, like, it wasn't just the cut; it was like the producer fee was insane. It was like yeah. four times the amount that I'd ever been paid to produce a song before. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to like be able to pay my rent for like a few months, <laughs> right, and, like, you know. Right. And when that didn't happen. It was just like, you know, it's just like sometimes you hear no enough times in a row in this industry. Yeah. And I, I'd never gotten to that point in my music career, but I was like in tears. It was like, oh, man. it took all the wind out of me. Yeah. And uh, I had developed some really close relationships with guys at the studio. And I was like, this is it. I, you know, I quit. Like, I just can't possibly here no anymore I'm, I'm tired yeah. I feel like I'm 10 years older than I am because I'm so stressed out all the time yeah, yeah. and they were like you can't like you're too good don't do not do it and like a week after that Philip Phillips came into my life right he had just won American Idol he was doing the American Idol tour and he had a three hour window to write a song in New York City and I happened to be the person that he ended up in the room with. Wow. And I had, uh, I didn't write Gone, Gone, Gone with him, but I wrote another song called Get Up, Get Down, which ended up being on the record. And he came out here to LA to, to make the record of John Oasia. And something happened, and John Oasia dro- stopped working on the album. Uh-huh. And Phil came back to Greg, who's known as like a producer. I wasn't really known as a producer. Yeah. And and said, hey, John Luigi is out. Would you produce a record? Because the song that I had written with him had gone so well. It was in Greg's studio. He got mm-hmm. to know Greg. Um, and so uh, we made the entire first two albums 
with Philip, but they they needed a follow up single to Home, which had just become a big radio. Yeah. Album. And uh, Philip had written every song in the album other than Home, and they they needed a follow up, and he was so busy tracking the album that uh, no, Greg had just right. signed a new writer named Todd Clark at the time, who's now one of my best friends. He's out in Nashville. Mm. And me, Todd and I met for the first time and wrote Gone, Gone, Gone. But the beginning of Gone, Gone, Gone was was a song that I pitched to the Goo Goo Dolls. Pretty much it was the exact song with a different chorus. Wow. And they had passed on it. And it was part of the culmination that made me want to quit music. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and then it became, you know, a number one song at three radio formats, wow, multi-platinum, and uh, changed my entire life. It ain't over till it's over. You know, and it was that <laughs> quick, though. It was like, yeah. that series of events was a week removed from me being like, I quit. Wow. And then it led to everything else I've done that's been, you yeah. know, profitable and not just that, but like, let me live my dream. Yeah. So yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So awesome. Um, so don't quit. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, kids? Yeah. <laughs> don't quit. Oh. Well, I think that you had enough of a uh, circle of people around you that they, no one was going to allow that to happen. But you probably would have come around within maybe 72 hours. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know. It's scary for us, like, you know, yeah. because it's like, you get to that point and then you're like, what the fuck else am I going to do? That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Right. I'm not going to work for the Kennedys again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I say that to my wife, I'm like, because one thing that I think is really hard about, maybe the hardest part about what I'm doing, mm -hmm. is that I really only have two choices of where I can live unless I want to leave the country. Which is, New, which is L.A. or Nashville. Right. The, it's hard to do what I do in New York anymore, which is part of the reason I moved out here. Right, right. Um, and so sometimes I play this game with my wife. If we didn't have to live in L.A. or Nashville, where would we live and what would I do <laughs> to make money for us? <laughs> okay, what are the scenarios here? <laughs> because that would be the ultimate dream, to be able to live wherever I actually wanted to. Right. Because we're, ha we're out here sacrificing quality time with our family and loved ones. To, oh, they're all back east. They're all, yeah, northeast. Yeah. So, um, that part is hard. In some ways, it's great. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, right. to have, to have, Make no mistake. have boundaries <laughs> yes. that are permanently in place. Yeah. But, <laughs> this is true. But yeah, it's a hard it's a hard part of, of Did you what I'm doing. Do you any uh, thoughts of where you would live and what you would do? Well, her, her family's a mass. My family's in New York, so Connecticut always seemed to make sense. Fair the compromise. Retiring out there makes sense. Yeah. Um, and all my friends are out there in Connecticut, yeah. actually. Yeah. Have um, you ever thought of trying Nashville or living there? Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, we were actually very close to moving there right before the pandemic hit. Really? Um, I was, uh, I had negotiated for 18 months over a catalog sale of all the music I did. Really? And, uh, as soon as the I was literally like I had signed the contract I was waiting for a counter signature uh -huh. from the company that was purchasing the rights and uh, pandemic hit uh, in March when, like right when I was waiting for the counter signature 
and they backed out of the deal. They froze all acquisitions at the company. And, uh, and the plan was sign that deal, sell our house, buy a house in Nashville, and like, you know, take a little bit of pressure off, uh, because I do have a lot of pressure. I'm, you know, essentially the sole provider for my family and with a very, um, hot and cold business. Right. Yeah. So, um, Nashville feels, uh, felt at the time like a safe haven like where I could still do what I do but like it's a little more affordable uh-huh. um, and then the pandemics actually sent inventory at an all time low there for homes and, and prices at an all time high <laughs> you know because everyone is leaving LA right I've worked with like like country Nashville writers mm-hmm. actually had an opportunity to write with some really big country music writers um, around like 2015 or mm-hmm. so. Um, one of them was Brett James who, who wrote Jesus Take the Wheel, oh, okay. Carrie Underwood, and the song we wrote ended up being a Rascal Flat song. Um, and I've written with JT Daly who wrote like Smile from Cracker and like Alone With You and, uh, uh-huh. and like big country songs and, and even uh, Shane McNally who's like one of the biggest country songs ever, our country writers ever. I got to write with those three guys. It was like the three big country wow. guys I've written with. And it was really tough, actually, because they had come to New York thinking, well, I'm going to write pop songs. Not pop, but like, what I, like pop right. rock, like I did. They wanted to burst out of thinking, their thing. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to write some country hits. Right. <laughs> and that sort of in like everybody's going like this. the issue with Nashville for, for guys like you and I are like pop rock or pop writers or whatever yeah. is that um, you re- to do country and this is what I learned from those guys and even more so now because I have more friends in Nashville who like explain this to me all the time right. whenever I send them a song I'm like this sounds like a country hit right and they're like Derek nah. <laughs> we've been through this a million times with you okay <laughs> you know <laughs> we have to say it again <laughs> yeah yeah but really there are like rules yeah to country lyrics especially mm-hmm. but, not 100% certain rules, but like there are rules There's that a... if you break them, it's just not a country song. Right. And uh, and there are rules to the production too. And, um, so I just had my, my, I don't know how many country cuts I've had, maybe just three or four. Uh-huh. But I just had a recent one last year, which I am really proud of. It's with an artist, a new country artist named Sophia Scott. And Iggy Azalea features on it oh, right. as, as, a, as a rap performance and a country song, and it's, <laughs> a it's genre bending. It's really cool, um, but um, but I had I have to have if I'm writing something country, I have to have one of my country lyric guys in the room with me, <laughs> checking all the it's boxes. Like quality control, right? One hundred percent. So I have a friend named Jason Signs, who's an incredible. Oh my god! That's so interesting. Yeah, that's wild, man. I'd be lost in that genre without a a Jason Signs. Yeah, (laughs) and that—I think that that's basically, you know, um, there was a there was a very brief window after the Caulfields broke up where I still had my publishing deal, and they were trying to set me up with co-writes and stuff and. 
I think I've ran into some similar things where like I just maybe I just couldn't figure out a way to put myself in the right space to check the boxes that needed to be checked because I, I, it just I just couldn't do it and I think that that's what drove my decision to be like well for better or worse I'm just gonna like get back in the car and just keep going as me uh, and I'm so glad you did dude I mean I am I am too uh, it would have certainly been nice to get some co-writes you know to uh, to help out with things but you know as as things went um, you know I'm more and more confident every day that I made the right decisions yeah um, and you know I, I just feel like I'm I'm happy with how things turned out I am so glad to hear you say that because you know you were a uh, figure that gave us some confidence in the beginning that we could have careers in music. And the first time I met you, I was interning for you, actually. I don't know if you recall Jim that. Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Um, selling merch, getting people to sign uh, up for the Ike mailing yes. list. Oh, my God. I was I, uh... then... Um, I was um, promoted to uh, being in a music video... <laughs> yes, you were. Right. <laughs> proved my, Listen, proved my, uh, got my stripes. I still <laughs> watch that video like probably once every season. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like the one scene where you catch the underwear and you like, yeah. It's <laughs> like, the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know that that music video confirmed for me that I was not born to be an actor. Oh come on! I was, well. I remember, um, what was the director's name? Glenn Mobley. Glenn. Yeah. Was so frustrated with me during that scene. Really? Because he was try- he was telling me, I forget what emotion he was telling me to convey. I think it was like cockiness or something. Right, like, just be, be cocky. Be cocky when you catch the panties. Right. You know? When you catch the panties. <laughs> right. And, uh... And like whatever I was doing didn't seem cocky enough. So he's like, "Stick your tongue out." And I, and I <laughs> in that moment, weird. what's captured in the video is me basically realizing live in time that I've never stuck my tongue out in a cocky manner <laughs> in my life. So it was really a, a moment in history. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, I like to think that deathbed launched. Derek's career. And even if that's completely false, at least he learned from that experience no matter how far he would get in the world, he would never be cocky about it. And it was very apparent to me that he's still the same awesome human I knew and played so many fun shows with way back when. I want to thank Derek Furman for getting together with me for this great conversation where, among other things, we discovered that when you order a big salad at Bob's Big Boy, it comes with a side salad. Now, before you dig in, this is like an official uh, podcast photo that we must take. Get your sonar. Should right I get there. my second salad? You know, in the I, if you have two salads in the yeah, shot, I that mean, would be I, like. I gotta rock two salads, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all for today. I'm John Kim Fay, and I'll see you next time for another episode 
of Talking at the Diner.